Matthew chapter 5. By the way, if you'd like to hear the beginning of Matthew, most of the sermons are on the internet. If you go to the Good News Baptist website, you can uh, follow the trail there to, to get the sermons that are preached. Matthew chapter 5. We've already looked at the uh, probably the most well-known part of the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes here, uh, coming chapter 5, uh, going all the way down to verse 12. We've already also already looked at verses 13, 14, 15, and 16. Now we come to, to verse 17 here. But uh, b- before we start looking at these verses, l- let me just kind of give you a little background here of what's going on. You remember, for about 30 years of Jesus' life, he... He pretty much lived in, in privacy and obscurity. Uh, not really, you know, not really didn't seem to do much, at least not as far as ministry-wise. Only Mary and close friends to the family would have remembered the miraculous events that surrounded his birth in those early years. The Bible doesn't tell us a whole lot about those early years of Jesus' life, does it? So as far as, as his friends and neighbors were concerned, he was pretty much just a, a Jewish carpenter, and that was about it. And it wasn't until he, he began his ministry, which was pretty much when he was uh, immersed in the Jordan River by John the Baptist, and then he started to preach that uh, people's eyes and attention was drawn to Jesus. And at that point, it was even the leaders of Israel. They, they couldn't ignore him. You remember, they were, some of them were even there at Jesus' baptism. Jesus' meekness, humility, his gentleness, love marked him out in great contrast to to the proud, the selfish, and the arrogant scribes and Pharisees and Sadducees and and the priests and the other religious leaders. His call to repentance and his proclamation of the gospel made people listen to him. They recognized there was something different about this guy and his teaching. Even if they didn't agree with him, it, at least you know what he said was drawing attention. They wondered, though, uh, many wondered if he was just another prophet, or was he a special prophet, or was he, a, uh, was he the Messiah or not, or was he a false prophet? They wondered uh, if he was a political or a military revolutionary who actually might be the Messiah who would... Who would uh, would break the bondage from the empire of Rome. He didn't talk, he didn't act like anyone else they'd ever heard or seen. He was different. He didn't identify himself with any of the scribal schools. There were several different scribal schools in Israel, and he didn't, he didn't line up with any of them. <laughs> he didn't identify himself with them or, or any other sect or movement that was going on at that time. He didn't... Uh, identify himself with Herod, and he didn't identify himself with Rome. It's like Jesus was just Jesus. <laughs> He's independent of everybody and everything. But this we do know. He openly and lovingly identified himself with the outcast, with people who are sick, people who are lonely, people who are sinful, even, dare we say, Tax collectors and sinners? Wow. Now there's a revolutionary idea, isn't it? But that's what he was accused of. He proclaimed grace and dispensed mercy. He was very different from the rabbis in Israel at that time. Uh, the, The rabbis and religious leaders talked only about religious externals, the things you, you do and things you say. But what did Jesus focus on? Jesus focused on the internals, the heart. The religious leaders and, and, and the Pharisees and Sadducees and scribes, they, they seemed to set themselves above other people and they demanded their service. Jesus set himself below people and became their servant. So he was very different in many ways. A primary concern to a lot of Jews at this time, as they were looking at Jesus and listening to Jesus preaching and his teaching, 
and, and they're trying to evaluate Jesus and, and, and trying to put him in a, into a, in a box, if you will, trying to figure this guy out. Many were evaluating Jesus and asking the question, what does he think of the law? Very important question. Another way of asking the question is, what does he think of Moses and the prophets? Faithful Jews loved Moses and the books that he wrote, which is the first five books in your Bible. They loved the prophets and revered them greatly. Leaders often confronted Jesus on matters of the law. You remember, they they often would do that. Many Jews believed that whoever the Messiah was, he would be this radical kind of a guy who would come and revise and completely overturn the Mosaic law and uh, overthrow Rome and establish his own new standards, whatever those might be. So that's what many people at this time were thinking, is Jesus comes on the scene. So Jesus addresses a very important question here in our passage in Matthew 5, 17. What does Christ think of the law? What does Christ think of the law and those particularly those first five books in your Bible and and the prophets and the writings. Well, let's see what Jesus Christ thinks about the law. Well, in verse 17, we see here, first of all, that Christ thought that Scripture is superior. He thought it was superior. And by the way, uh, I think this is referring, when you see uh, in verse 17, look at verse 17, it says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets, I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And some people might be wondering, why, why are you talking about the Old Testament Scriptures here when it says the Law and the Prophets? Well, <laughs> Jesus' hearers understood Jesus was referring to the Old Testament. When you, when you combine uh, it, the, the ideas here of the Law and the Prophets together, Uh, Jesus was clearly talking about the Old Testament here, and the hearers understood that. But we we see here that there's three reasons why Jesus believes Scripture is superior. Number one, it was authored by God. (laughs) That's the number one reason. It was authored by God. When when Jesus combines those words, law and prophets, together with the definite article, notice there's a definite article right in front of the word law. Hopefully there is in your translation. Because in the Greek language, there's a definite article right there in front of that word law showing that it is the only law. There is no other. And the Jews understood that was referring to Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. They knew that. There was no other law. It was the one that was given by God at Mount Sinai. It was authored by God himself. They knew where it came from. So Jesus made clear to his Jewish audience what law he was talking about here. The only law. He's talking about the law of God, the the Old Testament scriptures. Now, In the the scriptures themselves, the law is often used in reference to the Old Testament. As we read this morning in Psalm 119, you, you saw the word law there used several times. That's used in reference to the whole Old Testament. Not just Genesis to Deuteronomy. So Jesus believed the Old Testament was superior because, number one, it was authored by God, but number two, it was affirmed by the prophets. Notice Jesus puts the prophets in there with the law. The prophets reiterated and reinforced the law. All of their preaching, their writing, were directly or indirectly based on those books written by Moses, the first five books of your Bible. So therefore, God's revelation to the prophets was literally an extension of the law. That's what they preached. That's what they wrote about. So it was affirmed by the prophets, and number three, it was accomplished by Christ. It's superior because it was accomplished by Christ. Notice Jesus says here, I did not come to abolish the law. I didn't come to destroy it or throw it away or get rid of it. No, Jesus says, I came to fulfill the law. Now that's a complicated issue. I'm not going to be able to answer probably all your questions 
of exactly how he did that. But we'll get into that a little bit here um, as we continue through this passage. But just take note that Jesus didn't come to abolish it. He didn't come to get rid of it. He came to fulfill it. So we see, first of all, Jesus believed that Scripture is, is the best. <laughs> there's, there's nothing better. But he also believed it was permanent. He also believed it was permanent. Look at verse 18. He says, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. I don't know if you know what an iota is. My, my mother used to yell that, well, not yell, sorry. She used to use that word with me every once in a while. She used to say, I don't want to hear one iota out of you. And as a little child, I thought, what is that all about, an iota? Any of you ever have mothers say that to you? I don't want to hear one iota out of you. You're like, oh, that's helpful. I don't know what that is. Well, let me tell you what it is. An iota is the smallest letter of the Greek alphabet. The smallest letter of the Greek alphabet. The dot there refers to the small marks that help distinguish one Hebrew letter from another. It literally is a dot, and that's why the ESV uses the word dot, because that's what it is in Hebrew. It's, it's a little dot. It's kind of like, it's kind of like a, a small case I, right? Small case I, you've got a little straight line, and on top of that you've got a dot. That's what that's talking about. It's, it's the dot. It's not even a whole letter. Whereas iota is the smallest letter, like, like an I, for example, in the English language. And then the dot is the little part that goes on top of the small case I. Uh, another way of looking at this in, in English should kind of be the equivalent of, of the line that's added on to the letter P. Okay, Take a capital letter P, for example. Put another little slash on there, you get an R, right? So that little, that little line that goes on a P to turn it into an R would be an example of this. And you say, well, what, what is the point that Jesus is making here? <laughs> because, you know, we don't, we don't know, we don't speak this language, you don't know much about it. The point is that Jesus is saying to us that even the smallest part of a letter, even down to the smallest part of a letter, little dots, are not going to be erased from the law. They're permanent. Not even the seemingly most insignificant part of God's word is going, to re- is going to be removed until God's purposes are accomplished. I hope you find that encouraging. I do. God's word is permanent. As he is eternal, so is his word. So what should we do with scripture then? With something that is superior, something that's permanent. I mean, what what do you do with something like that? Well, let me just give you four practical points, okay? Number one, receive it. What do you do with Scripture? You receive it. All of it, by the way, including the Old Testament, because that's what Jesus is primarily referring to here. New Testament wasn't written at this point. So what do you do with it? You receive it as, as it is from God himself. It's his words to you. Number two, you honor it. Now, I'm not saying you, you worship Scripture. We worship God, okay? You understand that? We worship God, but, but, but God, God's Word should be honored, should have a, uh, uh, its, its rightful place in our lives. I'm not suggesting you go and make a shrine or anything like that. But we, we need to realize that uh, whenever the Word of God is preached, it's, this, is, this is a special time. Especially corporately speaking, you got to come. I'm coming here to honor God by honoring His Word. When you sit down and read the Bible in your own home, you need to honor it. Okay, you don't throw it around. You don't don't let dust collect on it. You don't you don't step on it. You don't let other people step on it. You know you don't sit on it. You know you know there's just some basic things like that. Ways that we can honor. God's word, but it goes beyond that. We need to obey it. One of the ways God wants you to honor his word is to obey it. He doesn't want you to ignore it. Don't just be a hearer of the word, but James 1 says be a doer as well. But another way we can do it, Jude 3 says, is to defend it. 
defend God's word. Earnestly contend for the faith, Jude 3 says. Earnestly. (laughs) Agonize. Agonismo is, is the Greek word. You agonize over it. You fight for it. Do whatever's necessary. So Scripture's permanent. It's superior. But number three, Scripture is relevant. It's relevant. Now this, in our age of skepticism, in our postmodern culture we live in, this, this issue of, of relevance is a big one. There's a lot of people going around saying, well, you know, Scripture's, you know, especially the Old Testament... You know, God's not like that anymore. He's not this God of wrath. No, he's, he's different now. He's, he's love. And besides, you know, that was thousands and thousands and thousands of years ago. I mean, why, who, who cares about the Old Testament? That's what many people say. Besides, how do we know we have it? <laughs> well, Jesus said we have it. It's permanent. That's the point of verse 18. But the point of verse 19 here is show that Scripture is relevant. Look what Jesus says. He In verse 19, therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. First of all, let me just say this, that the Bible is not a collection of men's ideas. Not a collection of man's ideas. It's not man's wisdom. God's wisdom. It's God's revelation of truth. Yes, he used approximately 40 different people, but it's really one author, the Holy Spirit, unifying it all together. Because Scripture is given by God for man, think about this. There could be really nothing more relevant to you and to me than to know the mind of God. In fact, Peter says, God has given us everything we need for life and godliness. Do you really believe that, though? I hope you do. And when he said that, he was referring to Scripture. Second of all, we see here, well, another reason we know it's, it's relevant is that there's consequences. <laughs> there are consequences here. Did you notice that in verse 19? The consequences, by the way, depend on a person's response to the law of God. How do you respond to it? Well, here's what verse 19 is saying. Whoever responds... To the law positively, guess what? You get positive results. You get the law of sowing and reaping going on here. However, if you respond to God's law in a negative way, for example, if you ignore it or you attack it, okay, God's saying there's going to be negative results in your life. If you ignore God's word, including the Old Testament, there's going to be negative results. You're going to be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. By the way, I don't think this is referring to loss of salvation. There are some commentators who have that opinion. And the reason I say I don't think it's in reference to loss of salvation because notice it still says you're in the kingdom of heaven there. Verse 19, it's just you're the least. (laughs) You're at the bottom of the pecking order, so to speak. You are least in the kingdom of heaven. You get into heaven by the skin of your teeth, so to speak. The slimmest thread. All right? So I don't think it's referring to loss of salvation, but there, there is this law of sowing and reaping going on here. So Scripture's relevant for at least those two reasons. But number four, what, what we, we see here, what does Jesus think about the law, about the Old Testament Scriptures? Well, he believed that Scripture's purposeful. He believed that Scripture's purposeful. Look at verse 20. Look at verse 20. Jesus says in verse 20, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoa. Wow. By the way, I'm sure that was shocking for the original hearers. Much more shocking than it is for you. Because we don't have any Pharisees and scribes running around here today, at least not that I'm aware of. They knew what those people were like, and I'll talk about them in a moment, because we, we really can't understand this without understanding these, these scribes and these Pharisees. What, who were they? What were they like? When you understand who they were and what they were like, you know just how shocking this was for the original Jewish hearers. So let me talk about these guys for a moment, okay? 
Who are the scribes? Well, the scribes recorded, studied, and interpreted, and often taught Jewish law. These were the the theologians of that era. As for the Pharisees, well, here's what the International Standard Bible Encyclopedia says about the Pharisees. Quote, The traditional view of the Pharisees has been that they were a Jewish sect or party whose members voluntarily took upon themselves a strict regime of laws pertaining to purity, Sabbath observance, prayer, and tithing. They joined together in Pharisaic communities. Many of the Pharisees were scribes also, though most were not. This accounts for the New Testament reference to two groups, end quote. So that's why you got the two groups mentioned. Jesus mentions both of them. So uh, just because you're a Pharisee didn't mean you're automatically a scribe, in other words, right? So what we, what we see in Scripture is that from, from cover to cover, the Bible confronts false teaching. And, and there's this predominant teaching that, that we as human beings, we think that we can earn God's grace. We can get to heaven in our own self-effort, whatever that is. Well, the Bible confronts that false teaching of self-effort from cover to cover. And that's what Jesus confronts here in this very verse. Jesus teaches that the sort of righteousness that the scribes and the Pharisees uh, lived was not sufficient to get them into heaven. Jesus says you need a greater righteousness, one that, that exceeds whatever the scribes and the Pharisees did. Therefore, what's Jesus doing here? He's really given us the purpose of the law. The purpose of God's law is to show how utterly sinful and utterly helpless you and I are to get ourselves into heaven. We can't get ourselves there. We're helpless. We're hopeless without God. So to Jesus' works-oriented hearers, you know, try to put yourself in their sandals for a moment here, okay? To, to, their, to the original hearers, this was... Like I said, it was something that was probably really radical, mind-boggling. It just blow them away. It would shock them. Probably the most radical thing they'd ever heard. You mean, Jesus is saying, my righteousness has to be greater than the scribes and the Pharisees? I mean, they, they looked up to these guys, and they're, they're the pinnacle. You don't get any greater than that. They're probably thinking, I don't even have any hope of getting to that level. How can I get greater? So, I mean, they're, they're probably saying to themselves, if, if the religious and these moral Pharisees couldn't get to heaven, then who could? And that's the point that Jesus wants us to get to. How do you get to heaven? <laughs> How can anyone enter heaven? Well, that's my second question coming from our passage here today. How can anyone get to heaven. Well, the standard of righteousness the scribes and Pharisees taught and practiced differed from God's righteousness in several ways. I'm going to point out these several ways for you here in our next few moments. So, it, God's righteousness differed from the Pharisees' righteousness, right? And uh, we're going to look at a few other scriptures to show the difference here, but it, it, essentially this, uh, as we look at the, the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, Number one, I want you to notice here, not, not coming from this passage, but their righteousness, as in the scribes and the Pharisees, was external. It was external. It was what they did, what other people could see. Turn over to Matthew chapter 23. Matthew chapter 23. This is a very helpful passage that Jesus gives to us here. We have seven woes to the scribes and Pharisees. Seven woes. We're not going to read the whole thing, but uh, let me encourage you this afternoon, go back to Scripture and read, read the whole chapter. Jesus is pointing out these woes, things that uh, the scribes and Pharisees taught and did, and of course Jesus had issues with that. One of the things that Jesus had issues with, he, he points out to us here, is that their righteousness, the scribes and the Pharisees' righteousness, was external and only external. The scribes and Pharisees, concerns, they, they concerned themselves with 
external observance of the law and their tradition. They took little consideration of motives or their attitudes. No matter how much uh, Jesus is going to show us in the passage, Lord willing, we'll look at next week. He, He points out that no matter how much they hated somebody, they thought they were not guilty of breaking the commandment of murder even if, they, if, even if they were murdering the person in their mind, they thought they were okay. You know, I'm murdering the, this person in my mind, but, you know, that's okay, because I'm not actually doing it. That's what they thought. They thought no matter how much they may have lusted, they didn't consider themselves guilty of adultery or fornication as long as they didn't actually commit the physical act. And, of course, Jesus is going to show us in Matthew 5, that's not true. Because if you do it in your mind, you've committed the act. You've sinned against God. Well, anyway, the, the, that's what these guys thought. You know, just, just do everything right on the outside. Doesn't mean what, doesn't care what's going on in my mind. That's okay. That's what they thought. Well, Jesus is going to show that's not the case here. Look at Matthew 23, chapter 23, verse 25. Verse 25. Jesus gives a very graphic picture of the the external character of these religious people. Look what he says in verse 25. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they're full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. We'll stop there. You can see Jesus giving this very graphic illustration showing the external character of these religious people. Oh, they seemed to think they had it all together, but Jesus told them otherwise. He told them to clean the inside first. It's interesting that the Lord prefaced these comments by saying, Woe to you, hypocrites. He knew exactly how they were on the inside. He labeled these leaders with their sin. They saw nothing wrong with having evil thoughts. They didn't see anything wrong with lusting after a woman. They didn't see anything wrong with with murdering someone in their mind. As long as they didn't carry out those thoughts externally, they thought they were okay. They didn't think God would judge them for what they thought, but only for what they did. But Jesus shows he cares about the inside, the internals here. Number one, the righteousness was external. Number two, the righteousness was incomplete. It was incomplete. Again, Matthew 23 gives us an example of this. Look at uh, verse 23. Verse 23. Jesus says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness, These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. By the way, you can see Jesus mentions things like uh, tithing on the mint, the dill, and the cumin, these various herbs Jesus mentions here. Uh, So what's going on here? These, These religious leaders of Jesus' time were very careful with minute details of tithing on small plants and seeds that were in their garden, and by the way, those, that wasn't commanded in the law. There's nowhere in the law that God commanded them to do that, but they thought they should. So they're, here they are, they're being very meticulous about doing something that's not even commanded in the law while they're neglecting something that is in the law. Do you see a problem with that? I hope you do. They're more concerned about their public prayers uh, more than they had with taking away, you know, innocent widows' houses, you know, ripping them off, so to speak. You know, here they are, they're ripping off widows, but, uh, you, know, you know, they go around in public praying, acting like they got it all together, which they don't. So the righteousness was incomplete. Number three, the righteousness was redefined. They, they, just, they just redefined righteousness. They made up their own righteousness. Look at uh, verse 1. Matthew 23, verse 1. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, 
The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. By the way, that was a, that was a place of honor in, in, the, in the Jewish synagogues. Jesus goes on to say, So do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do. For they preach, but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. Ooh, ow. You've got to love Jesus preaching. In many ways, the scribes and the Pharisees were kind of like the the neo-Orthodox or liberals of our modern day. I don't know if you're aware of this. If you do enough reading today, liberals are very, and neo-Orthodox people are really good at this. They'll take, they'll take, for example, terms like the inspiration of Scripture and twist it. <laughs> Where you could actually think, you, you have your own definition of what is the inspiration of Scripture in your mind, and you think you're talking about the same thing with this liberal or this neo-Orthodox person, in reality you're not. Because they've twisted it. They've redefined words. Dangerous. (laughs) So if you're ever talking to those kind of people, define your words first before you ever have a conversation. Just a little suggestion there. um, So that's that's kind of what's going on here. These scribes and Pharisees are kind of like the neo-Orthodox or liberals of of our own day. They they took biblical terms and redefined them to kind of suit their own human perspectives on life. One of the reasons they did that is they knew they couldn't keep the law. (laughs) By the way, that was one of the reasons of the law, to show that we're sinners. They knew they couldn't keep it, so when you can't keep something, what do you do? Well, just redefine it. That's what they did. They would take commands like in Leviticus 11, which says, Consecrate yourselves and be holy, for I am holy. Well, I can't do that. I can't be like God. So, well, let's redefine it. We'll reinterpret it. You know, that, that has nothing to do with, with God calling me to an attitude of purity in my heart. No, that's not what it's talking about. You know, th- this has got to be something else. So we'll, we'll change the meaning of, of God's holiness to something else so I can actually do that. And they did. Dangerous, by the way, but that's what they did. They reworked biblical teachings to produce their own variations so they could keep the law. And the reason they did that is because it was, it was fulfilling their desires and their capabilities. So their righteousness was redefined. Number four, their righteousness was self-centered. <laughs> it wasn't about God's glory it was, it was their own self-centeredness going on here. Look at verse 5. Matthew 23, verse 5. Jesus points their self-centeredness out here. Look at verse 5. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. For they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. They love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you are all brothers. And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Do you get the point? (laughs) They're self-centered. Jesus is saying, no, you need to be humble. You need to lower yourself. So their righteousness was produced by self for the whole purpose of glorifying themselves instead of God. Those leaders sought to be self-satisfied. Their religious system was designed to enhance their self-satisfaction and desires. They were doing this to provide ways of, of accomplishing um, their purposes, which was so they could boast of themselves. And, and so, you know, they were, they were very proud. They wanted people to look at them and pat them on the back and say all nice things about them and give them money. Their satisfaction came when they received approval and accommodation from men. So their righteousness was self-centered. Well, that's the righteousness of the Pharisees and the scribes. And Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5 here, you can't get to heaven unless your righteousness is greater than theirs. 
So we need to talk about the righteousness that God requires then. Let's talk about the righteousness and think about the righteousness that God requires. The righteousness God requires of his kingdom citizens far surpasses that of these scribes and Pharisees. In fact, in the ESV here, you see the word exceeds in verse 20. Matthew 5, verse 20, it says exceeds. That was used in reference to rivers overflowing their banks. So you think of, say, the Waikato River, for example, overflowing its banks. Jesus would say, well, it's exceeding its normal levels. Jesus is saying you need to be like that river. Exceed what is normal. The Lord requires genuine righteousness. God requires real holiness, internal holiness, that exceeds anything that's human and exceeds anything that you and I can do in our own strength. This, this is something that only can be done in a redeemed heart, a heart that's been converted. So what does God require? Well, number one, God requires inner righteousness, total exact opposite of the, the scribes and the Pharisees. Their righteousness was what? It was external. But God's re- righteousness is inner righteousness. One of the examples, I think, that shows this is in the Old Testament. You remember when... Uh, Samuel was supposed to anoint the next king. King Saul was was on the throne at that time. God sent Samuel to anoint the next king, and he went to Jesse's home. And uh, Samuel was about to do what was kind of the normal thing at that time, was was you you anoint the oldest son. That was the normal thing. I mean, he's he's the biggest, the strongest, supposedly the most intelligent, the the, the good-looking guy. And Samuel's about to anoint him. And the Bible says in 1 Samuel chapter 16, listen to this. Do not look at his appearance or at the height of his stature. Because I have rejected him. That's God speaking. I've rejected him. For God sees not as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance. But the Lord looks at the heart. That's our tendency. That's all we can look at, by the way, but it is also our tendency. We tend to look at the outside, right? That's all we can see. But God looks at the heart. God requires inner righteousness. And so God told him, no, don't anoint him. Anoint David. David is a man after my own heart. Number two, God requires perfect righteousness. Not just inner righteousness, but perfect righteousness. And in fact, at the very end of our passage here in Matthew 5, verse 48, Jesus said, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Whoa. <laughs> That's shocking. Is that what Jesus really means? I have to have this perfect righteousness? You mean to be qualified for God's kingdom, we have to be as Holy as the king himself is holy? Yep. (laughs) That's what Jesus is saying. My friends, do you you get the point here? Jesus is showing us that God's standard is so infinitely high and holy that you can't attain it. Not in your own strength, anyway. It's so high, even the most self-righteous person on planet Earth can't even claim to possess it and can't attain it. God requires inner righteousness and perfect righteousness. So let's think about the righteousness that God gives. Because, my friend, if you haven't understood the point yet that Jesus is preaching here, you can't attain that, but God can give it to you. God can give it to you. He's the only one who can give it to you. So the impossibility of perfect righteousness should lead every sinner and every sincere person to wonder, well, how how can a a person obtain this kind of perfect righteousness. (laughs) Funny enough, the disciples asked Jesus a a question kind of similar to this one day. When they were with Jesus, they asked him, well, who can be saved? Who can be saved? Jesus gives the only appropriate answer here in uh, Matthew chapter 19. He says, with men, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. So Jesus answers the question of how, how anyone can be saved. Well, you can't do it. 
but with God it is possible. So my friend, the one who is demanding perfect righteousness here in the Bible is the one who gives perfect righteousness. The one who demands it is the one who gives it to you. So my friend, if you go looking for it some other place, if you want to get to heaven, you know, in your own way, you aren't going to make it. That's what Jesus is saying. You're not going to make it in your way. You have to go to the one who demands perfect righteousness. So the one who tells us the way is the one who is the way. In fact, that's what Jesus said in John 14, verse 6. He said, I am the way, the truth, the life. No man comes to the Father except by me. So the one who tells you you have to go the way is the way. So the king not only sets the standard here, but he himself is the one who meets the standard, provides the way into the kingdom. By the way, you have to get into the kingdom on the king's terms. Jesus is the king. He gives the terms, and you don't get into the kingdom unless you go on his terms. You say, well, what are his terms? Well, that was the, the Beatitudes. That's his terms. And it starts with humility. It's poor in spirit. If you read the Beatitudes, his terms are, well, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. That's God's terms. You don't get into heaven by any other way. Well, some people think they can get to heaven by obeying the law, doing what the law says, but that's not what Jesus is saying here. In fact, the New Testament epistles back this this truth up. In in fact, Galatians 2.16 says, A man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus, since by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. In other words, you can't be declared righteous by God through obeying the law. In fact, you can't. In fact, Galatians says you you break one point point of the law, just one, you're guilty of the whole thing. So to be justified is to be made righteous, and to be made righteous by Christ is the only way that you and I can become righteous. Okay, is that clear, I hope? Well, let me give you just a few uh, points of application here from our passage, all right? Number one, the Old Testament is still part of the canon. It's still part of the rule that God, in this measure that God has given to us, it's still part of the Bible, in other words. Okay? And because it's still part of the Bible, it should be preached. Okay? It shouldn't be ignored. It should be, should be read. It should be preached. It should be taught. Okay? Don't ignore it. Right? Too often, uh, uh, we, we might read our favorite parts in the New Testament, but we ignore the Old Testament. Don't do that. All right? Uh, Look at it this way. Look at it as a a healthy diet. Okay? When you eat, is it healthy to only eat carbohydrates? No. What's going to happen to you if all you do is eat carbohydrates? Like, ooh, I'm going to have French fries and potatoes and hash browns and, you know, I'm going to eat all this stuff. And what's going to happen to you if that's all you eat? You're going to become a really big person. You're going to be horizontally challenged, I can assure you. You're going to step on the scales, and the scales are going to say, just one person at a time, please, all right? That's what's going to happen to you. That's not a healthy diet, right? Not a healthy diet, just eat that kind of thing. You need to eat other stuff as well, right? Eat a balanced diet. But too often we as Christians are unbalanced in our diet. We only, we only read our favorite part, like for me... I might be tempted to only read the book of Romans. I love that book. Great book. You might like something else. and you can, you can focus on that book, but you're not eating a balanced diet. God has revealed himself into this book, through this book, through multiple styles of literature, and you need to be familiar with all of them. That includes the Old Testament. So it needs to be part of your life. It needs to be preached. It is the Bible. In fact... In 2 Timothy 3.16, by the way, which refers to the Old Testament, that refers to the Old Testament there in 2 Timothy 3.16, it says, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, 
for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. And when Paul said that to Timothy, he was referring to the Old Testament. (laughs) So that includes the book of Leviticus, (laughs) which usually if you're like me, you start reading through the Bible, you know, you get all these good New Year's resolutions, and man, this year I'm going to read through the Bible, which I've tried several times, and and I've read through the Bible several times, but I must say I've failed several times too. You know, Genesis, okay, this is cool. You know, I love reading about creation. You know, the fall, well, that's not so good, but, you know, Tower of Babel and Noah's Ark, you know, cool stuff going on there. And, and you're, 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 it's going well, and you get to Leviticus, and you start reading all these laws. Whoa. Oh. And then you start reading so-and-so begets so-and-so, and so-and-so begets so-and-so, and he begets so-and-so. And, oh, man, what, what's that all about? You, you feel like that? Or am I the only one? I'm sure I'm not. But, my friends, it's all profitable. All of it. Read it. Study it. Number two, we must not reject the Bible's sufficiency. We must not reject the Bible's sufficiency. My friends, the Bible is sufficient for the church's evangelistic task. God has given us an evangelistic task as a church. Every church has this evangelistic task. But, but in our, our sinful, fallen state, we are tempted to abandon the Bible's teaching for things like signs and wonders. We're, we're, we're tempted to abandon the Bible for sociological techniques. You know, ooh, hey, let's study the baby boomers and Generation X and, ooh, the Generation Yers. Well, you know, hey, you know, how do we evangelize to all these different groups? And You know, that's, that's all interesting, okay? I love all that stuff. It, it, I'm fascinated by that stuff. Okay, I'm a Generation Xer. And it's helpful in some ways. I'm not saying chuck all that stuff out the window. But we shouldn't abandon the Bible and say, well, it's not sufficient. I need to know all these sociological techniques because, you know, I'm a Generation Xer and I don't know how to witness to a Generation Yer like this guy here. You know, he's a Generation Yer, so I mean, (laughs) I'm a fish out of water with him. No, no, of course not. The Bible's sufficient, it is sufficient. So if you're a baby boomer, like I know some of you are, you can witness to a Generation X or a Generation Yer. Because the Bible's sufficient. Do you get the point? Okay, you don't have to know all the sociological techniques. You don't need to know psychological techniques either. Okay, you don't have to be a Sigmund Freud and tell the person to lie on the couch and, you know, and come up with all silly things like, you know, you, you know your problem is really your parents. Your problem's not sin, you know. You just need to get over your parents. You've got this bitterness that, that's been bubbling up inside you for years, and that's your greatest problem. No, it's not the greatest problem. Our greatest problem is sin. <laughs> but do we believe that the Bible is sufficient or not? Or do we've got to throw in psych- psychology as well? I hope not. Don't abandon the Bible for psychology. Don't abandon the Bible for entertainment either, by the way. Too many churches are doing that. We'll just entertain people to get them into the church. You know, these so-called people who are seeking. You know, we need, we, need to, we need to do these concerts or dramas or, you know, really fancy PowerPoint presentations or whatever. You know, do all these things to entertain people so that then we'll kind of slip in the gospel. Oh, by the way, God loves you. No. Do, do we believe that the Bible is sufficient? And that people are saved by Scripture? Faith comes by hearing the Word of God. It's not our entertainment. By the way, competing with the world is rather stupid when you think about it. It really is stupid and foolish. The world is always better at entertaining than the church is. So why even go there? Anyway, that's, that's another sermon. So the Bible is sufficient for the church's evangelistic task. Number two here, the Bible is sufficient for your growth. Okay? Where else are you going to go for your spiritual growth than Scripture? What, the self-help section of the, of the library? Is that where you're going to go? Oh, the bookstore, yeah. Yeah, go to the bookstore. Go to the self-help section and find 101 ways you can be more like Jesus today. Right? Is, is, is that what you need to do? And I'm not saying there's, that's all rubbish, okay? That's not what I'm saying. You might find some gold nuggets there. 
But the Bible is sufficient for your growth in character. Sadly, though, many people don't actually believe that. And the reason they, we know we don't believe that is because how they live. They go to the self-help programs. They go to worldly counseling and so forth because they don't actually believe that Scripture is sufficient for their spiritual growth. My friends, that's worldly thinking. It's wrong thinking. God gave you his word, and Peter said he's given you everything you need for life and godliness. Believe it, because it's true. Number three, the Bible is sufficient for making an impact on society. Okay? It is sufficient. <laughs> Too often we look to government as our savior, thinking, hey, government's going to, government, you know, I just need to you know, kind of whip government into shape, and then government's going to have the impact on society. No. You know, we, we, we've tried that many times. When are we going to learn? When are we going to learn? You know, it, it, we can have all the referendums we want, but government doesn't listen to referendums, do they? They don't listen to that. doesn't matter how many people think we should not do something or do something. Government is not the solution. Government is not the savior. We need to stand on the sure foundation of God's word, and we need to expect God's word to transform people's lives, not the government or, you know, lobbying or whatever else you want to do. And I'm not saying you shouldn't be a responsible citizen, okay? Please do. Please vote. Go talk to your MPs, all right? You, you can have a little impact that way, and I'm saying you should do that. But don't look to government to be your savior. Don't look to government to impact society. Right? It's the word of God that's sufficient. The word of God is, that, is what is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword that's going to pierce into people's souls and do God's work in their life. Government will not do that. You cannot legislate morality. You ever heard that? <laughs> you can't. Okay? Government's not our savior. The Bible is sufficient, so we must not reject the Bible's sufficiency. But that is often our tendency, though. Christ believed that the Word of God was sufficient. Christ believed that the Old Testament is a part of the Bible. It is Scripture and needs to be preached. He preached it. The apostles preached it. So should we. Okay? You need to believe that. You need to promote that wherever you go in this world. My friends, this is what Christ believed. You want to know what Christ believed about the law? This is what he believed. <laughs> Read Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 to 20. But my friends, as you, as you understand what Christ is saying here, don't ever think that you can get to heaven in your own way, in your own strength. Through your self-effort, it can't happen. You will never exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, my friends. Never. Jesus lived the life you should have lived. Jesus died the death that you deserve to die. My friends, he is the substitute. He is the perfect righteousness. My friends, if we don't believe in him, if we're not trusting in him, you will never go to heaven when you die. The only way we can go to heaven is through the way, the truth, and life. And his name's Jesus. 